This is The Guardian. Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. England are in the World Cup final, the first one since 66, the first one ever for the women. A brilliant performance against the Matildas, led from the front by Alessia Russo and Lauren Hemp after Ella Toon's thunderbolt silenced the home crowd and so Spain stand in the way of Serena Wiegmann doing the Euros World Cup double. Also today, a first trophy of the season for Manchester City. They weren't at their best and Sevilla will be doing some ruing this morning after missing a couple of great chances before going out on penalties. Great to see Scott Carson in full kit dancing again. What a cabinet that man has. We'll look ahead to this weekend's Premier League action, including City against Newcastle and Spurs Manchester United. All that, the vasectomy correspondence never ends. We've got your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. Barry Glendening joins me. Hey Barry. Hello. Uh, Jordan Jarrett Bryan and Jonathan Fadubel will join us for parts two and three. But first of all, let's go to Sydney. Uh, the Guardian women's football correspondent Susie Rack joins us from her car. I presume the Guardian put you up in hotels. And you've not been living in a car the whole time you've been there. Uh, how are you, Susie? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, no, not in a car permanently, luckily, just today to get to Terrigal, where England's uh, like training and hotel and stuff is based, which is about two hours north of Sydney. You, you would hope, Max, that the Guardian would at least spring for a ute if that was the case. absolutely right anyway anyway look england are in the world cup final how how are you feeling not as a journalist but as a fan you know and someone who has followed and and covered and promoted the women's game for so long weird (laughs) like i I sort of don't really want to let it sink in because i don't want to hope because you know as it is it's great that they've reached a final for the first time of the World Cup and that is brilliant I you know I can live with that I don't want to think about the prospect of winning because that is too much to think about at the moment especially with Spain as as good as they are but it's exciting what's exciting is I just I so thought that their chances of doing anything good were over um with all of the injuries and that like the game against Australia they just really impressed me in a way that like I couldn't have imagined and there's something really really likeable about them as a group of players and just a group of people and the people around them and Serena was just so likeable and you just get really invested in that journey um and yeah I mean the idea that you know you could have Kira Walsh and Lucy Bronze who could win a Euros the Champions League and the World Cup within a year is just slightly mind-blowing but you know I've stood there when Lucy Bronze has walked through semi-final mix zone after semi-final mix zone crying her eyes out pretty much and so it's really nice to not not be doing that for a chain trying to not think about it too much is the answer paul sent this message and i think it kind of sums it up just saying how joyous was the the post-match huddle 
of what looked like the whole England squad and supporting staff, I was struck by how unselfconsciously overjoyed Serena Wiegmann looked and by the obvious love, affection and respect that all the players have for her genuinely moving stuff. Yeah, and they said some really nice stuff in the mix zone afterwards about her. Um, and she, she's just she's just very, very personable. Like, we really enjoy talking to her as press as well. Like, she's just really normal, really, really Dutch, so really straight to the point and, you know, doesn't take any crap. Um, but also just really thoughtful and stuff as well and has a really great philosophy on the game because she reflects on her career as having not always enjoyed it. So she's very much like, I don't want to... I say I say that her playing career is what I mean. So she doesn't want her players to go through any moment in their career not having enjoyed it. So for her, that is like such an important part of of what they do and why they why they put so much effort into sort of where they stay and what it's set up like and the access to family and friends during the tournament and all of those kind of little things that um, and and just letting them play with a freedom that plays to their strengths. Right, it's all about making sure that they don't do what she does and reflect on her career and think, damn, I wish I'd enjoyed that moment more. Um, it was really difficult. I was actually very unhappy at that point. And so that's like, you know, how can you as a player not love that, right? Like someone who is going out of their way and sees it as critical to your success that you are looked after and enjoying the moment and yeah, living your best life at, you know, in your early mid twenties or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, it, it, it builds a really, really strong bond between them. That that's something that should be kind of normal, and yet we hear about so many football governing bodies who make no effort whatsoever to ensure that their women's teams not only don't have that kind of environment, but don't even have the the very basics like you know kit and stuff. Yeah, and even you look at um, you know the final against Spain against a team that is like in, in to all intents and purposes in dispute with its manager and uh, um and and federation really divided um you know you can see after <laughs> contrast the end of the spain games with the end of the the end of the england games and you've got the manager basically being ignored by absolutely everyone on the pitch just sort of wandering around slightly gormlessly and then when alexia puteas came off uh, against sweden he held out her hat, his hand for a high five and she just literally just completely ignored it and just walked past it, her arm just brushing it as she went past, completely, you know, not even looking in his direction. And that, I suppose in some ways that makes what Spain have done in reaching a final pretty remarkable that they've done it despite <laughs> all of that going on in the background. But at the same time, like, you know, it, it just shows you like so starkly the contrast of uh, the, a happy environment and a sad environment and, and what could potentially be the difference in something like a final where, you know, if Spain had all their players there and not some who are, you know, not there in protest at the the setup and the environment, I imagine it would be a very, very, very difficult game for England rather than just a difficult game for England. Can you remind me, Susie, why do Spain's players hate their manager so much? There's a number of reasons. Like it's never come out sort of in a, a lot of detail, but there was talk about um, uh, reports in some of the press of. Um, him making the players leave their bedroom doors open until sort of midnight so he could go in and check that they were in, checking their shopping when they returned back to their hotel rooms to see what they'd bought. Really like a really controlling, oppressive, not very trusting environment. Um, so that's, and, and then like not enjoying the, the training methods, not seeing them as 
um, anywhere near the sort of elite level that particularly the Barcelona players are getting at Barcelona, like seeing a massive, massive deficiencies in the level of coaching and training they're getting from club to international level as well. It's, you know, completely divided the deck dressing room in a pretty horrible rate, really, and that some have returned, some haven't. And it, you know, originally there was quite a unified group and it's, um, it's all ending quite messily. Um, and I think it's partly why a lot of neutrals will be on England's sides going into the final um, in a way that they maybe probably wouldn't normally be. I thought it was England. Okay, England did hammer China earlier in the tournament, but they were so efficiently brilliant yesterday, I thought. And and I was sort of one of the idiots suggesting perhaps Russo wasn't really delivering in this tournament. I hadn't been convinced by Lauren Hemp. And the two of them, I thought, were, were brilliant yesterday. Yeah, I think those two actually been brilliant the past couple of games. The one who really surprised me was Ella Toon because I had very much sort of been she's not not good enough to feel the boots of uh, Fran Kirby or Lauren James you know not in that she's not a good enough player but she's a different type, style of player she's not as like technically um, astute in tight spaces as they are she's not really a classic number 10 she doesn't really she doesn't play the role in the same way and she was sort of getting bossed off the, the pitch a little bit early on in the tournament for England and then she you know scores in the semi-final and, you know, <laughs> also scored the winner against Spain in the Euros last, goal, last right? year as well. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, incredible goal, brilliant strike, but made by Russo and Hemp again as well, you know, set up, uh, assist from Russo, set up by Hemp initially. So it's, it's I just, the, the thing that is really exciting is they, for me, is that they, they've had so many challenges, so many obstacles, both in terms of the injuries before the tournament, but then, Kira Walsh getting injured and missing a game or two. Um, Lauren James being suspended. The formation not quite clicking in the first couple of games and looking a bit predictable and stale. And yet they've found a, like, a way to kind of round every single one of those. And like for me, it's the first proper tactical test of Serena. And she's pretty much passed every single hurdle uh, really, really impressively. So that's that's quite exciting because that has just built the belief of the group even stronger as well. Because they, you know, they they, they see the results <laughs> um, going their way. They see the success in in what they're doing, and and you know, so why wouldn't you believe even more and you know, kind of play with a freedom and a a freedom of expression that 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 the manager is encouraging when you you kind of feel like everything you touch is going to turn to gold with her in charge. It's been a great tournament for we should never plot someone's route to the final ever again, hasn't it? When, and, and, and perhaps it's sort of played into England's fortune a bit that all the sides we thought who would be consistently good haven't, didn't, they didn't even play them, they didn't even play, you know, I think it was Germany, was it? They could have got, they could have got Canada, they could have got, um, you know, and the US obviously have gone out. And it feels to me like lots of teams have been good for a couple of games and then, oh, they're out. Like Japan, it was like... The Japanese are brilliant, and then suddenly they lost, or the US have played well, and then they're out. And so, I don't know if it's fair to say, but no team has been like consistently brilliant for this whole tournament. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's it, it's a, been a really weird tournament in that sense, but kind of like in a really good way because I think there was a lot of fears with it be it being expanded to thirty two teams from twenty four that you'd see some really massive score lines. You know, we saw thirteen nil in the World Cup in 2019, you know, would we see similar? There's a whole load of new teams in it. And instead, 
it's been a lot more competitive. There's a couple of six nils, but you saw a six nil in the men's World Cup, so it's not that dissimilar. And the gap is actually a lot closer than I think people think. And what is the big bridger of the gap is that there's generally speaking some really good, like technically, tactically astute managers in charge of some of the the lower ranked teams that are doing a really really brilliant job and are are coaching them past some of the big guns, which is just brilliant. But yeah, I think it's a little bit of a wake up call for a lot of a lot of teams. And I mean, England throughout, you know, obviously they weren't impressing, they weren't impressing and you know, in mix zone after mix zone, press conference after press conference, they're going, Oh, you know, we're growing into the tournament, you don't wanna you don't wanna play your best football early on and I'm sort of like, Well, what point do you start playing it? You know, like when does that when does that kick in? Come on guys, like, you know, why wouldn't you want to play your best <laughs> football early on and then keep playing your best football? Um but it's like, I mean, left eating humble pie. Like it's it's the proof is in the pudding, right? And the game against Australia, I just thought they were so composed and patient, and like you could see that the the pressure of the occasion didn't phase them at all. Whereas perhaps it got to Australia a little bit, and maybe that's the experience of like five semi-finals in a row at major tournaments, and then a win, obviously, in the final at the Euros last summer, just giving them an edge psychologically, maybe that. They just never seemed worried about losing. It just never seemed to be a thing that they were concerned about. And that feels very different. I mean, I was slightly concerned when Sam Kerr had those two chances. And we should talk about the goal, right? Because the stadium was, what, I don't know, 95% Australia. I have been back for a day, but that day was wall-to-wall Matilda's coverage, right? It was brilliant. And that moment, because I thought, actually, Millie Bright's doing the right thing here. Let her shoot from there. It's not a terrible idea. And it was, that must have been amazing in the stadium. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely crap myself. I mean, like, I, I've seen Sam Kerr do it <laughs> all too many times, usually to my teams, being an Arsenal fan as well. And I, like, I just knew she was going to score. You just, at some point, you, the, uh, some of the Guardian Australian, Australia journalists were sat next to me and uh, they're going, oh, she looks a little bit um, out of sorts, blah, 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 first half kind of thing. And I was, I was like, she doesn't, it doesn't matter because she, she will always do something something she can you know not touch a ball for 95 minutes but then we'll we'll pull off something incredible out of nowhere um I think I think I wrote in my match report she pulled a, a rabbit out of a hat when there wasn't even a hat there you know like she just makes things happen I've seen it just too many times I mean I was at the Olympics the Team GB the Australia match where Ellen White scores a hat-trick and Sam Kerr I think scored twice at least and they won 4-3 and knocked England out when they were a minute away from going through to the semi-final. So, yeah, I like, I've experienced a lot of Sam Kerr, <laughs> like, heartache. Um, so I, I was really thinking that that would swing the momentum of the game because it really felt like that for those those seven and a half minutes or whatever it was before um, before England pulled one back. But um, it was it was a very sketchy <laughs> few minutes. And then particularly late on when... England were ahead and she had those two absolutely guilt-ed chances. I mean, any any other time where she is fit and is playing regularly, there is no way she's missing either either that header or, which is, I think, slightly mistimed, she was sort of a bit, a bit underneath it, or that volley. You know, 99.9% of the time, a fit and healthy Sam Kerr is putting those in the back of the net. So there's a lot of luck in there and a lot of what-ifs and stuff for Australia, I think. But the the thing is is there's been a lot of talk about how Australia aren't one team blah 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 but actually I thought 
it was a little bit evident in that that they still there still is quite a big golfing class between her and the rest, and it's maybe not quite as level as as people thought it was. Does Lauren James automatically come back in, given how well Alatoon played? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was in a <laughs> Faye, Faye canvassed uh, us on this on the women's podcast the other day, and uh, um, after the game, and I was just like, my instinct says no, she doesn't come straight back in because Ella Toon like has earned her place in, in to start in a final after that performance. Um, you know, she was obviously phenomenally good. Got the goal. She looked so much better. Um, she was good in the final of the Euros. On the other hand, Lauren James is Lauren James and she's a magician and Spain are a team that will, you know, own the ball and, you know, Lauren is someone who will keep it at her feet and not let people take it off of her. And in a sense, you kind of want that player on the pitch against a team like Spain. But that said, I do, I lean towards keeping Ella Toon because I feel like why mess with a, why mess with something that's working effectively? when, you know, Lauren could have an impact off the bench, I suppose. Susie, I hate to end on this, on what has been such a positive conversation, but there are three Manchester United players in the squad. They may return to a club which is, quote, reintegrating Mason Greenwood. Manchester United released a statement yesterday. We talked about it a lot on the pod yesterday before this statement came out. Um, It's quite long, but I need to read it. It says, following the dropping of all charges against Mason Greenwood in February 2023, Manchester United has conducted a thorough investigation into the allegations made against him. This has drawn on extensive evidence and context not in the public domain. We have heard from numerous people with direct involvement or knowledge of the case. Throughout this process, the welfare and perspective of the alleged victim has been central to the club's inquiry. and We respect her right to lifelong anonymity. We also have responsibilities to Mason as an employee, as a young person who's been with the club since the age of seven, and as a new father with a partner. The fact-finding phase of our investigation is now complete. We're in the final stages of making a decision on Mason's future. Contrary to media speculation, that decision has not yet been made and is currently the subject of intensive internal deliberation. Responsibility ultimately rests with the Chief Executive Officer. Once made, the decision will be communicated and explained to the club's internal and external stakeholders. This has been a difficult case for everyone associated with Manchester United. We understand the strong opinions it has provoked based on the partial evidence in the public domain. We ask for patience as we work through the final stages of this carefully considered process. There were conflicting reports, Susie, about whether the views of the Manchester United players who are currently at the World Cup were going to be sort of taken before a decision was made and the fact that they were just going to be told the outcome and their views taken, but that wasn't going to be part of the decision. But I just wonder how you feel about those players being put in that sort of invidious position. Either way, whether they're going to a World Cup final or not, it just feels so much pressure for the, that they even have to think about this. Yeah, and the timing of that breaking was absolutely awful, right? It was on the eve of the quarterfinal, I think, um, which, you know, the last thing they need is to be asked in a mix zone or be worrying about being asked in a mix zone about Mason Greenwood back at home. Like, it's just an insane situation. The idea that, that would come out in any way um, that, you know, whether they're being consulted or not, whether it's determining uh, like what happens or not, just shouldn't, shouldn't ever be on the radar when you've got players competing at a major tournament. But even like, regardless, you know, whether they were or weren't, the idea that you, uh, the decision rests potentially, although they argue that maybe it's not now uh, on the input of those players 
I, I think it's appalling. I don't think any player should be in a position where they're then open to a, a huge amount of public abuse. Um, you know, we see the what Twitter is like and the sort of rabid defenders of um, any player accused of any different version of, of abuse, sexual abuse, assault, whatever it may be, regardless of whether they're guilty or not, there are sort of a rabid pro-club um, group of fans that just attack anyone who has any criticism of whether a player has a right to play or not, regardless of how justified their their argument or logical, whatever it may be. So the idea that you're opening this door for these players to just be absolutely brutally attacked, because if he did, if he doesn't play for Man United again, the players are going to get that, regardless. Now I think whatever happens, regardless of whether the club say this is this decision was nothing to do with what the the women's team said or not they are going to get attacked why is he playing for our club this is your fault you've stopped him from you've ended his career blah 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 they are going to get that kind of level of like attack and abuse unnecessarily that they didn't need so like i mean sort of regardless of what you think of whether they should um uh whether he should ever play for man united again or not i don't think he should um based on you know what is out there in the public domain i think it would be completely inappropriate to have a situation where you're you're putting fans in a position of having to cheer for someone like that i think that's really really difficult compromising position to put put them in regardless of all of that the fact that you're essentially directing a huge uh, a lot of abuse towards a group of female footballers i think is just terrible basically and and do you feel any pressure or i wonder i wonder if you know the england camp are protecting them like not putting them up for press conferences because i I wouldn't want to ask them a question about it, but I suspect there is a journalist who might ask them about it or if you feel any pressure to ask them a question because it's... Yeah, weirdly, I, I, th- I think that there hasn't been anything from the FA that has been like, we're not going to give you this player on the basis of this. If anything, you know, we've had most of those players come through mixed phones and stuff um, and talk to us and stop and talk. You know, we had Ella Toon uh, yesterday. Um, Mary Earps has done press conferences since then and things like that. But it's, it, yeah, so that's not been an issue. I think actually there's been a little bit of a journalistic anger about the fact that this could be something that needs to be asked at this tournament um, and mm. a sort of a bit of a pushback and a not asking it pointedly because we don't feel like it should be something that they are having to be asked from a like moral point of view, um, which yeah. surprisingly yeah. so far everyone has seemed to have like, without having ever said anything, respected almost in quite a unified way so yeah weirdly it's not come up whereas you know usually you think there's one who will ask that question but but it, yeah it just hasn't um sort of organically which i kind of respect in a lot of ways yeah um susie so you're you're walking into the it sort of looks like it's an episode of hunted now gradually so <laughs> through is, yeah. with your you know on your phone into a, a press conference we'll let you go we will of course talk to you uh after the final um and you know uh uh enjoy it and thanks for coming on cheers guys catch you later uh, Susie Rack there out in Sydney. Women's Football Weekly is out on Sunday after the final. It'll be on our feed too. That is it for part one. Jordan Jarrett Bryan and Jonathan Faduba join us for parts two and three. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, hello, Jordan Jarrett Bryan. Good morning, mate. How are you? 
very well. There was a sort of long delay, which obviously will be cut out of the pod edit, but it made it sound made you sound like a really impressive foreign correspondent <laughs> for a second there with that a huge pause. Uh, Jonathan Faduba joins us. Hey, Jonathan. Good morning, Max. Right. Uh, we're going on tour, Barry, aren't we? We are, yes. Uh, in November. Yes. How excited are you? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say at the moment about 6, but as the time approaches, uh, that will ratchet up to at least an 8. Okay. Uh, do you think people who are 6 out of 10 excited will buy tickets? I hope so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm 10 out of 10, and you should be too. Not you, Barry, but you know everyone else should be. Uh, uh, London on the 13th of November, Bristol on the 14th. Manchester on the 15th, featuring the Will Unwin anecdote. Uh, the 20th and 21st are residency in Dublin and the 22nd in Brighton. Um, uh, we're just working out the panels. We've got all the panellists in on, like Polaroids at a table. And I'm like Simon Cowell and Barry's like Louis Walsh. And producer Joel is like, uh, uh, who else was in it? Danny Minogue. And there we are trying to fix who goes where on the panels. Very exciting time for all of us. Louis Walsh once knocked me off my feet by hitting me on the back of the head with a rolled-up newspaper. Right. Was he angry, or was it, sort of, was it like a, some some badinage? Playful yeah. but violent badinage, and, and literally knocked me off my feet. What, what newspaper was it? I don't know. I'm guessing probably the Irish Independent oh. or Irish Times was quite heavy, yeah. and it, it happened in Dublin. Right. Could have been the Saturday Guardian. That that right. would pack quite a punch. It would. And it actually knocked you over? Yeah. Right. And then did you sit on the floor for a bit? or? It, I was on a pavement. It was it was on the street it happened. Oh. Okay. Had you ever met Louis Walsh before? Or does he go about it? <laughs> I had met Louis Walsh before, yes. Right. Okay, that's good. Could we recreate that in Dublin? Would he come? Would he do a cameo and try and knock you over with newspaper? I'd say he probably would. He's a nice oh. fella. He don't think he's up to much at the moment that I'm aware of. Oh, that would be absolutely great. Uh, Theguardian.com slash FWTour23 if you'd like to come. Uh, let's talk about the Super Cup then. Um, Man City winning on penalties after a one-all draw with Sevilla. Jonathan, how much do we care? Does it mean... I mean, the, the players... They definitely celebrated. The severe players looked sad when they lost. But there was a little part of me that didn't quite believe everybody. And I was just watching I was watching a, a charade in front of my eyes. Slightly muted celebrations. Um, even Jack Grealish said that he's, he's not going to go too mad on this occasion. So that, that tells you all you need to know, really. I mean, it's, I guess in the context of it, it's important for, for Manchester City in the sense of the, the fact they've never won it. It's another sort of trinket for Pep to sort of tick off, off, the, off the list. So from that point of view, and I kind of get the sense that for Manchester City and fans, that kind of thing, it, it, there is that, let's face it, there is that comparison with Manchester United in the sense of they won the treble and just like increasing their trophy count and getting closer to, because they're not actually that far away from, from United. I mean, if, it's probably not unthinkable to think that Pep could win two more Champions Leagues, which would put them level with Manchester United's entire European Cup history. So... Um, if he stays for I don't know if he stayed for another five ten years, yeah, I guess in the context of that, I think for their fans, it's important to keep racking up the the trophies. But yeah, I do get what you mean. There was a sort of a pre season, sort of a European charity shield air about it. So um, I don't don't think either team was massively pleased or disappointed. But it was it was a decent game, good preparation and good minutes. Cole Palmer obviously was a standout. But um, yeah, I do I do I do understand 
your feel, your sentiments there, Max. Do you know what? I'm trying to work out if it would have been an extraordinary moment when Man City overtake Man United for trophies, uh, you know, and I, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but, you know, you say two more for European stuff. But I just can't work out if when we get close to that moment, the discussion about who's the bigger club will just get absolutely, it would become agonising. And I just won't be able to cope with listening to it. I mean, it, it. Jordan, do you think it's kind of ominous that City haven't been quite at it in these two games and yet they've won their first game in the Premier League 3-0 and they've got a trophy? I guess why some would say that, but I think for me, I'm looking at definitely as an Arsenal fan, but as, as a neutral in this capacity, I'm looking at it as a, well, that actually could be a sign that they're just not on it by three or 4%. And that could be the three or 4% that actually makes the difference. I'm not really a believer in um, this cliche that a sign of a good team is one that doesn't play well and still wins. I think that's applicable for a game or two, but to win a league title, you have to play well. So the fact that they're not playing particularly amazingly is is I'm trying to hold on to the fact that that's because they've dropped off by a couple of percent and therefore, and that may be just due, due to a bit of hunger, I could be clutching. I accept that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the point is, Barry, you would drop a couple of percent if you don't have Gundogan, who scored such crucial goals, Bernardo, who is going to sign a contract, but injured, and Kevin De Bruyne out for four months. They found it difficult to break... Sevilla's low block, didn't they? Yeah, uh, Mares has gone as well, of course, and I suppose Cole Palmer has given Pep something to think about with that good performance. Uh, got in some nice crosses, scored a good goal, had a, a shot from distance saved, and Pep is, doesn't seem to know whether... It looked like he was going to be sold. I think West Ham are interested in, in taking him. But... He's had such a good start to the season, albeit in you know the Community Shield in this game, that the Manchester City might consider keeping him. Uh, Pepper said he won't go on loan, but yeah, I thought Manchester City created quite a few chances. Erling Haaland was pretty quiet; and didn't do much. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. Have the celebration police been out? Manchester City look quite pleased to have won it. Perhaps that was me. That was maybe I am the celebration. Yeah, you're police. the celebration like, police. Yeah, I do apologise. I think you have to factor in that it was incredibly hot uh, in Pyrrhus where the game was played, so that might have affected both teams' performances. But um, yeah, it was all right. You know, past the time on a. What day was it? Wednesday evening? <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to add that I think that Pep Guardiola has also just mastered the, the the art of the marathon and not the sprints. And I think that this, the, the, this, I, I didn't think they were particularly great last night, but I think that they won't panic about that. I think losing the two players they've lost are, are huge. But I think what's more important than the quality for Pep Guardiola is the hunger. And I think people talk about losing Gundahan and Mares. It's a lot of quality lost. But he's hoping that I think in Kovacic and Guardiol that the hunger makes up for that loss in quality. And over the course of the season, that ultimately is what is, is what will really see them see them through. So the first few games of the season, they, they they never start the season particularly well, in my opinion. But I think it's about the it's about the marathon, not not the sprint for them. Yeah. I mean I suppose Jonathan Kovacic is a different type of player, isn't he? And and you do with this De Bruyne injury. I think there's rumours they might be in for Danny Olmo, who's a slightly different player, but you know certainly adds creativity. Like, do you think that De Bruyne news will push Pep into doing something in the transfer market because he's such a transformational player? 
in, in a strange way, I think the De Bruyne timing of the injury is quite fortunate for City in the, in the sense that the transfer window is still open. There's still a few weeks. I do feel like you sort of mentioned that three or four percent. I, I feel I feel like that almost translated to their transfer business. Like they they kind of seemed quite relaxed. Not you know, obviously Guardiola is a big signing. Kovacic kind of maybe a smart smart move. He's kind of similar. Um, in style, maybe to Gundogan statistically, stylistically, and 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 can kind of maybe do a, do a job, but I do feel like they haven't gone out in the same way that say Arsenal or Chelsea or others have. Um, but I feel with the De Bruyne injury, like four months is a long time, and and and, and let's be fair, like, and I, I think I remember saying this last season, like De Bruyne, De Bruyne is in the latter stages of his of his, his career. He's, he played so many games of the last sort of four or five years as well. You know, it's hard for it's hard for any player to keep keep at that level for so long, and and his body's clearly sort of um, struggling with the minutes. Obviously, the injury in the Champions League final. So, I do I do feel like that might give them a bit of urgency to to maybe go out and, for example, sign Paqueta or maybe one one or two others. If you looked at their bench last night, they had uh, a couple of youth players, Oscar Bob and 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 Mcatee on the bench, and the the their bench is looking a little bit. You know, one or two more injuries, and they are they do start to look quite light, really, City, especially with the the, the sales that. They've made in the summer, so I do think that the injury probably might give them a little bit of urgency. I think in both games, the Burnley and the Sevilla game, they did they have conceded a lot of chances. Like they, I do feel like they didn't. Um, Burn both Burnley and Sevilla didn't take their chances, and it could could easily have gone the other way for them in both matches. You know, as, as Jordan said, they, they they do tend to be slow starters. City at times, and Pep Pep knows how to master that um, that race. But I, I do think their squad is a little bit weaker uh, this time around. So I think there is a challenge for them to. And with that motivational, having won a treble, with a little bit of dip in motivation, I do think City have a bit of a challenge this season to to be as good as they were last season. Yeah, unless we missed those two chances for Sevilla Baz, he did score a brilliant header. And what was great about it was Ali McCoyst loved it. And Alan Smith was doing international co-coms. And at one point, Alan Smith just went, oh, I love a big cross and a big header or something <laughs> like that. Like just getting nostalgic about goals. You you don't see goals like that as much anymore. Um, do, you, do you not... I don't know, um, but yeah, it was a great header getting between Guardiola and Nathan Ake. He had no business winning it, but he did, and, and it was a, a lovely finish. And unfortunately for him, he he uh, he he went on to miss two good chances. Are, are headers like that rare these days, or was was there? A- I mean, they're not in League One, right? <laughs> I mean, so so like. You see them a lot. I don't know. Maybe they're not. It was just the nostalgia that Alan Smith had made me feel that they don't happen as often. Um, and it is also worth mentioning Scott Carson in full kit dancing is just so good, isn't it? He looks so old now. So, you know, when he's standing next to Phil Foden, it just sort of looks ridiculous. But like quite a lot of Sunday league teams have a really old goalkeeper, you know, and quite often it's just a man who isn't even a goalkeeper, just there in tracksuit trousers. And I just, I love the role that he is filling there. Uh, let's move on to the, the Premier League preview. They play Newcastle, Jordan, uh, Saturday evening. I think Pep's been moaning about that game not being on a Sunday. But it's fascinating to see. I mean, this is a fascinating game given how Newcastle started, and you were lots of people were interested to ask you how you felt about Aston Villa getting hammered by uh, Newcastle. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed actually that you guys didn't invite me on to the Monday pod. I think there was an agenda going on there from you and the Guardian. Yeah. But it's we're okay. not going to change the lineup <laughs> de- depending on Aston Villa's results, Jordan. Um, obviously, I loved it, but um, I, I think Villa will be okay. Um, I think it's been a little bit of. 
a, a little bit of exaggeration on how well Villa will do this year based on some good signings and that they have a very good manager. But I think there's been a little bit of, I think people have gone a bit too far. I think for Villa to do what people are predicting they do this season, they have to pretty much maintain what they did under Emre last season. And that is going to be very, very hard. What he did last season was insane. That was, it was an insane record that he went on. So I think people are just expecting a little bit too much from Villa. But you know, if 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 there's one team going to Newcastle game against City, I think Newcastle will go into the City game feeling very, very good, very, very good about themselves. I slightly had Newcastle lower than I think a lot of other people did, but they look good. Eddie Howe's a good manager. Manchester City will give them a good test. And I think in a weird way, it's a good time to play City. Just going back to earlier on, talking about City's possible, you know, probable slow start to the season. If you want to play City, probably now could be the best time to play them rather than when they're in the groove post-Christmas. Also, a trip to City, you want to get that out of the way early as well. So I, I think actually Newcastle will, will relish this, this challenge. Um, I think Isaac is going to have a really good season this year. Um, I know they had a lot of injuries last season, but I'm expecting some really good things from him um, and quite a lot of goals from him. So I think he will look forward to taking on um, the, the, the City defence uh, this weekend. For Manchester City, you mentioned the De Bruyne injury. I think that'll be huge, but I think they've kind of prepared for it. He's had some big injuries over the last couple of years. So I don't think it will be a surprise, but I think he's a huge figure within that squad. And I'm a massive De Bruyne fan, but I feel that we might be seeing the kind of the decline now of of the great the great Belgium. But we'll, we'll, we'll see how City get on in, in this game. But I think this is a game that City would have pro- probably preferred to have avoided this early in the season. Bit of a coup for Newcastle, Barry. Um, St. James's Park will host two international friendly features featuring Saudi Arabia's men's national team in September. Um, the Green Falcons will face Costa Rica on the 8th of September and South Korea on the 12th. So uh, they've done well to get those fixtures, haven't they? They have. Nothing nothing weird about that at all. And uh, I know some people think that Newcastle is owned by the Saudi Arabian state and that might be why the games are being played there but the Premier League have you know, given us assurances that, and so has Amanda Stavely that nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I, I think it's been known those games are being played at St. James's Park for quite some time but the club announced it yesterday and I suppose it's just all about the, the reaction of various people to it. Obviously, people who... who aren't Newcastle fans and have greeted the news with with ridicule and laughter. And then some Newcastle fans think it's great. Some think it's awful. And others have uh, been, you know, doing the mental gymnastics and and the the whataboutery we've, I suppose, come to get... Well, we're used to it now at this stage. And... (laughs) Mohammed bin Salman is visiting the UK in autumn for the first time, I think, since Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. And we'll see various Tory government, the Prime Minister and various other Tories twerking for him because they want trade deals with the Gulf states. And Newcastle fans seem to think that this highly regarded local cultural institution they have, that is Newcastle Football United Football Club, shouldn't be held to any higher standards than the worst iteration of the Tory party there has possibly ever been. And I suppose they're entitled to that opinion, but 
it, look, I think it's sad. Hmm. Will the Tory front bench be twerking for MBS at half time and during these matches? I, I well, I'm not sure if MBS will be at these matches. It would be good a time as any, I suppose, for him to to visit St James's Park if if um, the the two dates tally up. Yes. Anyway, uh, Spurs play Man United. I think this is going to be fascinating, Jordan. Uh, I don't know if Spurs have anyone who can do what Matthias Cunha did to Manchester United. I don't know if Richardson can score a goal. But Manchester United can't be worse than they were on Monday night, I don't think. But I was very encouraged by Tottenham at the weekend. Yeah, Tot- Tottenham definitely, I mean, the, the bar is low. I mean, they weren't awful and they were you know, relatively pleasant to watch. And that's coming from an Arsenal fan. So I think that is a start um, against a good Brentford side. So I think Tottenham fans should be slightly encouraged by that. I'm really interested to see how he gets Son integrated into this kind of new leadership role that he's the captain there now. I'm really keen to see how he does that because he spoke quite well of Son and I don't think Son is a centre forward, but he was he seems to be playing quite high up alongside Richardson often in that match from what I could see. And it just didn't really work. But he was really out what he was really I mean, that was interesting, I think. I can't remember. Nicky made a point on Sunday that, that Son and Kolesewski were really wide. And that's how Ange likes to have his wingers. And neither of those two players are get to the byline and whip it in. You know, they both cut inside. And I think that is a thing that he has to kind of work out, I think, Ange. He, he does, he does. And, I, and I, I'm keen to see how that, because Son's his best player and I think you want to get the best out of him in, in his new role as well. So I'm, I'm keen to see how that, how that works out. And also regarding United, you're right, they can't be any worse. I don't, can't think of a, a luckier team to, to get away with a 1-0 win in, in recent years. Um, their midfield was really, really bad and there's a lot of work to do there. And I think Casemiro had a good year last year and got a lot of plaudits for, uh, you know, being the midfielder that he is. The downside is that he's no spring chicken coming to a league where you have to run a lot. <laughs> you have to run a lot in this league. And I think that the contract he's on, I wonder if they've got the best year out of him. Um, it's one game, so let's not make too many you know, huge conclusions off that one game. But he, he, did, he did look really um, isolated, but also just very, very leggy. And that was a bit weird for being the first game of the season. So I, I'm keen to see, as I say, with Son, how they work that out. But with Casemiro, the support and the system they have in that midfield to ensure that they're not as open in this game as, as they were um, in, in the Wolves match. The, the most interesting stat maybe to bear in mind is, I think, According to one source anyway, Wolves completed 43 dribbles in the game against United and the only team that completed more dribbles at the week, uh, in the first weekend of the season of any team was, was Spurs, who completed 45 dribbles. So you can kind of see the direction Spurs are going in. They're trying to run at people. They're trying to be a bit more enterprising and attacking. Um, and I think if you bear that in mind, with Postacoglu, clearly an intelligent manager, um, all the signs would tell you to keep dribbling um, and try and direct those runs through that gaping chasm in the United midfield that, that is the space between Bruno, Mason Mount and, and Casemiro. Um, I do think the conclusion, I mean, my conclusion to that United game was I don't really know exactly what Mason Mount um, is going to offer the team in the sense of what is he more of an attacking midfielder or more of a an eight. Um, he seems to sort of press a lot, but that, that left the space. And that is why Casemiro kind of got into trouble, I thought. Um, because both Bruno and Mount were kind of so high, essentially, when in their pressing and in the way they wanted to play. So I think Ten Hag is going to have to tinker a little bit and try and f- figure out that midfield. Obviously, they've sold Fred as well. Um, McTominay looks to be on the way out. So it, I do feel like the, that United midfield risks getting exposed even more than it did last season. And I think watching that Wolves game, I, I couldn't help but draw the conclusion that 
United risk getting another seven nil at some point in the season, or you know, a five nil, six nil, um, because they don't seem to have learned their lessons. And in fact, they've almost gone turbo mode with Mount. It's almost like we get rid of like Fred, who's slightly more defensive. Um, get rid of McTominay. Let's just go all out. You know, let's just go all out, all out in that midfield. So I do think United risk that if they don't, if they don't sort of sort it out. Uh, in terms of predicting the match, I'm not. I'm not really sure to be honest because. The only thing I'd say, like in in a positive sense, I know United got a lot of crit- criticism, but they won the match, and that's the first time. Like I think under the in, under any of the last sort of two three managers, they lose that match, and then that you know the, all the kind of doom and gloom comes back. But the only positive thing to really draw from it is they actually managed to win somehow. Um, so I feel like United are a little bit more resilient these days, but they just they do still have these days where. They, everything goes out of the window, and that that Wolves game was one of those games. It could easily have ended up sort of three, four nil to Wolves, but they they just managed to sort of hang on. So, I guess that's a long winded way of saying I don't have any predictions. But uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I, th- I could see it being high scoring. Let's put it that way. My my favourite part of that answer was Jordan was sitting very still with his hand on his chin like Bruce Forsyth, but the lampshade <laughs> made it look like he was wearing a fascinator. And it was just a lovely sight. To see that Jordan had really dressed up for your uh, prediction for, for Spurs Manchester United. Anyway, that'll do for part two. We'll do the rest of the Premier League and any other business in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, time for Barry to ask you for money. Not for him, but for the wonderful cause that is The Guardian. You may have seen that uh, The Guardian's banned gambling ads across all online and print coverage following in the pod's footsteps uh, i may say uh, the new policy will apply to online advertisements on the guardian's website app audio video and newsletters as well as print advertisements uh, in the guardian and observer newspapers and guardian weekly the policy covers all form of gambling advertising including sports betting online casinos and scratch cards given the different nature of lotteries we do not propose to include lottery advertising in this policy. It's something we've covered on the pods a number of times, uh, the impact of gambling on people's mental health, financial well-being, um, and The Guardian wants to make sure we live our values, Barry. Um, a similar decision to the ban on fossil fuel ads that came in in 2020. Making decisions like this means we don't have any money. None. Yeah, we're partless. We're, we are an independent news organisation. Uh, we don't have a billionaire owner or a proprietor who can censor us. Uh, instead, we rely on uh, a wonderful global community of readers and listeners to fund our work. So we rely on you. And as we established last time, Barry, the Football Weekly audience is the most loyal of all Guardian consumers and also the tightest. And <laughs> <laughs> Yes. But uh, I will not be you... censored. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, if you are able to support us, you can give as little as a pound, a euro, a dollar, whatever, uh, by going to theguardian.com slash support FW. Theguardian.com slash support FW. And if lots of people, lots of you contribute, it makes them think that we're really good. And you get this for free, right? So come on. Uh, there'll be a link in the description. There are links across the Guardian site. Um, it is important to mention the link, it says here in the notes for me <laughs> so there we go at theguardian.com oh I thought you were just <laughs> reciting all that off the top no, of your head no, no. Uh, theguardian.com slash support FW anything you want to add Baz no I, I I won't be censored but I'm also not going to F and Jeff and go full Bob Geldof but yeah we've been doing this a long time and it's it's free so you know a couple of quid please. yeah I mean we are paid by the I mean it's fair to say that we are paid yes we are, we're not you know, this won't go to us. 
it should, but it won't. Because, uh, you know, just getting the garden done. And it's more expensive than you'd imagine it would be. Anyway, Chelsea go to West Ham. I was interested, Jonathan, in the fact that you said you think Chelsea would be much better this year. Uh, did that game against Liverpool sort of crystallise that or make you think that there are still questions? Obviously, Caicedo comes in sort of baffling, billion pounds spent. Um, still lots of players, but they've got a lot out the door. Um, what's what, what do you base your prediction? I think I think essentially, if you just keep signing loads and loads and loads and loads of the world's best young and experienced players, at some point <laughs> it is going to click. Uh, and managers and sporting directors, I think they've got two sporting directors, both ones from Brighton. Um, but yeah, I just feel like I think I think a lot of people are expecting the chaos of last season, but I don't I don't see that repeating itself. The transfer business is, has been good. I think I think they they are just signing like really good players. To be honest, like every player they're signing is is just really good. So I, I, I just feel like at some point it's, <laughs> it's really good analysis, right? And not enough people have just said that out loud. It's true. Like, I mean, it, I mean, it is. I mean, Fernandez, Caicedo, probably Lavia. You know, I, I know Nkunku got injured, but even Jackson, I thought he looked really sharp on it on on his debut against Liverpool. Disassi is a quality player. They they still got Badia Shield to come in at, at some point. I, I expect obviously Colwell. You know, Brighton wanted Colwell back. Liverpool tried to make a bid. I think at some point for Colwell as well, or prepared one. They just have really good players. So I feel like, you know at some point it's going to all gel. I don't think maybe they're going to win the league, but I, it wouldn't surprise me this season if they if they competed to win the title. To be honest, so that's my early hot take of the season. Jordan, you've, you've taken off your fascinator and you're grinning at Jonathan. Well, first of all, I do the hot takes here, mate, all right? So just, <laughs> just, just calm down the hot takes. I, I was going to say, it's funny, Jonathan, you said that you think Chelsea have learned lessons from last season because wasn't the whole issue with Chelsea last year in amongst the chaos that they just had too many players? And I just feel like they've got rid of a lot of players this summer, but they're just bringing in a lot of players again. So the issue surely is there's just how do you get all these players to play? And at least last year they had Europe. They've got no Europe this year. So isn't the issue going to be that the quality of player they've got is high, granted, but the number of bodies in the building is also high. So it's well and good having all these great players, but if they can't play, what's the point? Do do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I think the short answer to that is how do you keep the players happy? Probably the the answer is going to be loan loan at six of them to Strasbourg, uh, their new feeder club that they've they've bought. Um, obviously, Patrick Vieira is the manager there. They, I saw they won the first game of the season as well. And I would expect some of them... I mean, they signed Leslie Uguchuku from Wren. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he's back in Liga within two or three weeks, uh, maybe on loan at Strasbourg for, for part of the season because he's uh, he can play midfield. And uh, he, obviously, there's no space for him now with Caicedo and, 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 um, and, Fernand- and Fernandez and, and, and Lavia probably coming in. So... Yeah, I think I think that will solve some of the issues. They have somewhere now to park some of those players. Um, whether you know the debate about the multi club model and feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels wrong if you could just put ten people in a minibus to Strasbourg and say. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's something that a lot of teams have done. They're kind of following the Brighton model. Brighton have uh, a club like that as well. Manchester City, the City Football Group. So I suppose from that point of view, yeah, the Todd, you know, the Todd, the Clear Lake Capital team, they now have that club that they can now go and, and, and park those players at. I would expect the likes of Andrea Santos and players like that probably get get parked out. And I just think also Pochettino is a little bit more long in the tooth. Um, I think ta- tactically, I thought he did all right against Liverpool. Like he made a, f- a few switches that he talked about in terms of positioning of Chilwell. 
and in the second half how he changed it a little bit to maybe give them a little bit more control um, against Trent and um, little tactical things that he did I thought just were quite were quite clever so I just feel the manager is a bit more experienced a bit more has a bit more know-how the, the, the team is as I said they've just got really really good good players and uh, I think Jackson will do quite well as well this season so yeah I expect Chelsea to be a, a lot better in terms of West Ham well they, they obviously Harry Maguire's rejected them they are in a bit of a, a strange phase at the moment just seems to be a bit of discontent um, and maybe boardroom level with a new sporting director and that kind of thing so I feel I feel West Ham is still kind of they're not they're, they aren't done are they in terms of their squad so I don't I think they're a little bit behind in that sense so I, f- I feel like Chelsea should should win but I mean Jordan to be fair you're right it could go spectacularly wrong again which I th- I'm sure a lot of people would find quite quite pleasing hilarious yeah, yeah. <laughs> objectively very funny um uh Arsenal got a palace I know you're not one for big swings here Jordan but uh, can Arsenal win the title I think they can and I think they will um and that's not just being a biased fan I just think all factors in I just think this is Arsenal's year. I think City squad-wise are weaker. I think Arsenal squad-wise are stronger. I know Timber's out for the season now, which is a massive blow. But I just think they'll have learned, well, I'm hoping they'll have learned from the the, the, the collapse of last season and how to handle the pressure better. Um, so I think Arsenal will win the title this season. I don't think it'll be easy. I think they'll be pushed all the way. But um, yeah, I think this is Arsenal's time. Uh, Liverpool play Bournemouth. Vinay says, is replacing Hendo with Endo the most like-for-like transfer of all time? It was my first thought. This is great. <laughs> Just getting someone, drop the H. It's how it, that's how they call, they, it's, they, they'd say the same thing when they, Enzo, um, Waturu Endo, uh, reportedly joining Liverpool from Stuttgart. Um, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, Jonathan, but I assume you know everything there is to know about this guy. Maybe not everything, but uh, yeah, he, he he's a 30-year-old Japanese midfielder, captain of Japan, uh, played in the World Cup. Uh, I think he played three of the four matches, um, started them, and so he's you know, he's got that experience. I, I think it is he played on he played at the weekend um, in the German Cup and scored. So you know he's he's kind of re- ready to go. I guess he's fit. It is a bit strange because he has played a lot of games as a centre back in his career. I think he's actually played more games as a centre back than as a midfielder in his career. So although he plays as a sort of holding midfielder for for Stuttgart predominantly, it doesn't quite feel like the kind of Lavia Caicedo type mould of player in just in terms of characteristically. But I think he is a reliable player. I feel I feel like maybe they've got they're going for someone a bit more experienced. Maybe trying to get a bit more maturity in that dressing room. The fact that he's captain, obviously, and and there's. There's definitely the feeling, I, I think, that you know Liverpool have that kind of um, interim um, sporting director, uh, Jörg Schmetke from, from from Germany. So I feel like maybe that's the, he's pulling on the, his contacts there. They've obviously lost out on two players, um, and obviously the fee is a lot a lot smaller. You know, they they, had, they prepared their 110 million um, for Casado, and that, and that the fee for Endo is going to be I think 10, 15 million, 20 million. So clearly they've still got. Um, money to sort of maybe hold back. And I feel like the only, I suppose for us, for Liverpool fans, the only risk is that they did a similar thing last season with Arthur, if you remember. Does anyone remember Arthur? No, I don't remember. Yeah, do I remember Arthur? <laughs> Barry, do you remember Arthur? Vaguely. Yeah, so he, yeah. he sort of came in towards the end of the window. Arthur Mello? Yeah, and got injured and didn't, he barely play basically. So it was, it was kind of like an afterthought signing, really. Um, and I suppose Liverpool fans will just hope he's not another Arthur. Uh, and he can just be his own endo without the H. So it's an okay signing, but I, I think it does give Liverpool fans a little bit maybe of cause for concern because 
they've been so good at recruitment for the last sort of five, six years, probably maybe the standard bearers in the league. It does feel a little bit muddled what's going on at the moment with, with Liverpool. And, um, you know, normally when a transfer is announced for Liverpool, it's done, isn't it? You normally, you hear about it like at 11 a.m. and by 11.05 a.m. they've announced it in the shirts there. So the Caicedo thing felt like a bit of a, a massive check, you know, move from that. So, yeah, I'm not sure it's going to satisfy the fans, but he's sort of a an OK player who will kind of do a job. I don't think he's going to be like a standout, incredible player, but yeah, let's see how he goes. Good luck to him. Let me take you to vasectomy vestibule. Pete says, given all the vasectomy chat at the live show, can we expect to see Max undergoing a live vasectomy while Barry acts as the vasectomy distractor? Is that a role you would you like, Barry? I don't think I'm ready for a vasectomy. Um, are you? Uh, we're thinking of maybe of having another one. I don't know. I mean, honestly, you forget. You forget. I mean, right now, Ian Rushton is very jet lagged and he's not in the mood. And I would say, you know, this evening is not the evening to suggest having another child. I also don't want another one this evening. So, you know, it's not, you know, as long as I have the same number of children as Mrs. Rushton, I'll be happy uh, is how I feel about this. I'll let you know, Barry, as and when. And, you know, if you want to come and distract me while that, you know, it will only bring us closer together. Ed says, hi, I thought I'd write in as a medical professional who's considering having a vasectomy. Following up from your chat on Monday's pod, a comedian would be the last thing you need. You need to be as still as possible with someone rooting around in your groin. Uh, maybe Wilson doing a live reading of Inverting the Pyramid would be more appropriate. Thank you for the wonderful pod as ever. Ed in Ealing. Producer Joel said in the WhatsApp group, I genuinely cannot believe the number of emails we get about vasectomies. There is a small section in the Guardian Football Weekly book dedicated to listener email listener emails on vasectomies and car crashes because we wanted a page that said vasectomies and car crashes. If you remember, a lot of listeners were having car crashes while listening to the pod. The second volume of the book will be exclusively vasectomies and no football. And finally, Dumas Dad says, good grief, I hope Barry and Samantha make a life together. Following on from your plans to stop the marriage when you were just asked to wish the happy couple good luck. It's been a while since there's been a big controversy. The entertainment value of such a union would have no limit so um, someone's on your team, Barry. Oh, good, good. Um, team Baz and Sam. Yeah, uh, we'll keep you posted on that. Um, anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Jordan. Cheers, mate. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Baz. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 